Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We turn in Scripture to Isaiah chapter 66 for our call to confession this morning, the first three verses of Isaiah 66. Hear God's word. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Thus far, the reading of God's word. David Wells has made the point that God's holiness does not weigh heavily upon us as it used to, as it did for Isaiah. And the same is true of God's word. The church has lost a due sense of trembling at God's word. Worship is meeting with God, hearing him speak, responding in praise and prayer. And it's telling that for the church today, worship is basically singing. Worship is what we do. And while we need to be more engaged and active in worship, we need to worship first by listening to God's word. We read, uh, we read scripture responsively, like we just did, to accentuate our participation in worship. But we mustn't lose sight that God is speaking to us. Uh, you know how annoying it can be, the person who isn't really listening to you, and the nanosecond you're done talking, they have a yeah but right away so that you can tell they weren't listening, right? We can sometimes do that to God. Will we listen to him speaking? Do we really expect guidance and direction from him in his word? Do we stay open to his leading as we read and understand the Bible? Or have we already decided what needs to be done on our own? This calls us to confess our sins to the Lord. joined Paul and Silas in the first five verses. We'll begin at verse six. Hear God's infallible word. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. A colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. 
the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart, and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. A lot to unpack here. Let's jump right in and go through. We've got six uh, sections 
of a sort that you see in the bulletin outline. Uh, the main point, I would say, is that God leads Paul here to plant and to protect a church in Philippi. And we'll see that as we go. Verses 6 through 10 first, the confusion and the call. Uh, there's some confusion here that we have to avoid, and that's the name Asia. When we think of Asia, we think of China, Japan, Vietnam. Asia in uh, biblical times was a Roman province. It was western Turkey, uh, more uh, accurately, southwestern Turkey. Uh, Paul and Silas and his team are in roughly central Turkey at this point, and they want to head southwest towards Ephesus, which is the major city of Asia. a a major hub, but for some reason, they are prevented by the Spirit. And it's interesting, we don't know what that meant, how that happened. Was it an internal impression? Was there a road closed? We we don't really know. Uh, Illness, uh, persecution, prophecy, it seems Paul wanted to go there, but couldn't. So it seems they have an extended time of not knowing what to do next which is interesting. It seems to me God planned to extend the gospel into Europe, north to Greece, modern-day Greece, before going uh, west, further into Turkey. So that's what uh, is happening here. Uh, Notice in verses uh, 7 through 10 that there's a subtle change in the pronouns. This is just a, there's a lot of uh, interesting history in this section, this chapter that I'll be pointing out. Like verse 7, after they had come, but then verse 10, uh, now after he had seen the vision, the Lord, uh, excuse me, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel. So sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course. Remember who's writing this? This is Luke. So uh, most people assume that Luke joins uh, Paul's team at this point because it's they up until then. And now all of a sudden we get all these sailing details, which Luke really likes. He'll tell you every uh, city where the the boat stopped if he's on board, it seems. And that's what you get there in verse 11. So it seems that Luke joins them for the first time. Um, But the main point of this section, the the call uh, to Macedonia, is about guidance. So let's pause for a moment to think about guidance in our own lives. Uh, There's uh, negative guidance and positive both. Uh, not just commands against sin, which we have in Scripture, but also positive leading too. Uh, be, be renewed in, the, in, in your mind. Be transformed. Uh, renewed in the image of God, for example. The guidance is circumstantial and it's also rational. It's fascinating in verse 10, after the, the, Paul has the vision, he shares it with the group and it says, immediately we sought to go concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And those are plural verbs. So it's not just Paul having a vision and saying, all right, team, we're going this way now. He shares the vision with the team, and the team together concludes, yep, let's do that. So there's, uh, um, it's not just what happens to you, but it's applying scripture and common sense also to events and opportunities in your life. That's uh, what uh, guidance is all about here. Uh, Part of the situation here was Luke, I think. Maybe he had some information about Macedonia, too, that that led them to go there. It seems like he's from there, perhaps, even. Uh, When they go to Philippi, he has some roots there, it seems. Uh, So so guidance is both personal and corporate. You you have a vision given to Paul, right? Uh, But it's considered by all. 
And uh, that's something to remember anytime you're making any major decision. That's very important. Um, we do that when we talk about uh, pastors being called to the ministry. Uh, you may have what we call the internal call. You feel like you're called to, the, to be a pastor, but you need other people around you to confirm that. You need an external call as well. Uh, guidance is personal and corporate. Same thing if you're making some other big life choice. It's important to, to get uh, a multitude of counselors to consider those things and not just do what you feel like doing. Um, we talked about this a little bit at the men's forum this past week too, but uh, consider in your vocational guidance, uh, consider three things especially, uh, your interests, your abilities, and your opportunities. Uh, and put those three together and wherever those three merge, that, that's a pretty clear leading. Uh, just some illustration there. Uh, for example, for me, uh, I am not called to be a scientist because I have very little interest in that, right? I'm not called to be an illustrator because I don't have the ability for that. I'm not called to be the president because I don't have the opportunity for that, right? There, there's different uh, categories there to consider. Uh, you might be interested in playing football, but you're five foot five and 100 pounds. Well, is okay, maybe, maybe can you be the kicker or a receiver? Maybe there's something you can, can you work on that and get there? Or is there something else to pursue? Where those three line up, ability, interest, and opportunity, then you have a real option to pursue. So that's the first section, the, the guidance that Paul receives to go to Macedonia. And then we have verse 11 through 15, they meet a disciple. They head for Philippi, a, a major city and a Roman colony, and that's important. They're always going to major cultural centers. Well, not always, but usually. They're, they're headed for those. Um, a colony was a deliberate military and cultural assertion of Roman, the Roman way of life. Uh, Caesar literally takes his army veterans and sends them to colonies to live there. So you can't retire in Rome, you go retire in Philippi and be Roman there for those Philippians. Show them how it is. Show them how to live. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians that your citizenship is in heaven. So we're called in the same way to go out there and show them how it is. We're, we're, we're colonies here of heaven. And we're called to show people on earth how the kingdom of God is and how we're supposed to live. Not a Roman way of life, but a Christian one. It's a very similar pattern. So uh, they head for Philippi. And in th verse 13, they start with the Jews there. Here there's no synagogue, not even the standard 10 men required. And Jewish custom then was to worship by the water nearest the city in such cases. So that's what they do. They somehow figure out there's no synagogue. So, well, it, where's the river then? They, there were these standard rules that the Jews had for how to worship in situations like this. They follow those and find some women there who are worshiping uh, in, a, in the synagogue way, worshiping the God of Israel. They meet Lydia, verse 14 and 15, a certain woman, seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. That's all interesting. Uh, where's Thyatira? Well, it's in Asia, believe it or not. That Paul had tried so hard to go to Asia, and, and now he meets a woman from Asia. <laughs> uh, who's got roots there, that's her hometown. So uh, I glean from that that God often works in roundabout and unexpected ways. 
and we need to patiently follow his providence. And this is why I read from Joshua about Caleb. Uh, you may have it in your head to do some particular thing for God, but he knows that isn't best for you right now. He might have you do it 45 years later, like he does Caleb, right? So uh, stay resting in God's providence uh, in that situation. So Paul meets Lydia from Asia, right where he wanted to go. And she sells purple, which means she's making dye, which was the renowned product of Thyatira at the time. Lydia is probably selling Thyatira's dye in Philippi. Uh, And purple is the color of Roman rulers, and Philippi is a Roman colony, a leading city. So Lydia has a, a really good market for her goods, and she's got the goods. So she's probably a very prosperous woman. She invites them into her home, the whole team, to stay. Lydia hosts a house church, essentially. So God opens her heart. Paul speaks, but more than words are required for conversion. The Spirit has to give life. So God opens her heart. And that's Ezekiel 36 we read, right? God gives us a new heart, not a heart of stone, but he opens our heart. It's like the the water from the rock in the desert, right? It, Moses uh, strikes the rock and, it, and water comes out. That's what God does with our hearts. They're, they're hearts of stone. But God can turn that and, and bring water out of that. So, uh, so Lydia brings them into her home, verse 15. Uh, here we see hospitality as an outworking of the gospel. Uh, it's a little unusual, a little out of the social norm, even our, in our day, for a widow, Lydia, or a single woman, I think, she's, I think she's a widow, a little unusual for her to host several men in her home for many days. But this is what she does. Once the heart is opened, John Stott says, the home is opened too. So I would encourage inviting others into your home. Hospitality is a good thing. Um, don't think of it as entertaining or impressing people. You want to get to know them. Just give them a little food maybe and friendship. That's really it. Maybe have some games ready, practice your conversation skills, share your joys and troubles. That's important. And part of hospitality, too, is allowing other people their social patterns. You know, we try to do certain things as a church together. That doesn't always work with with, um, hospitality and social functions. If somebody doesn't go to the fellowship meal for Sunday lunch, that doesn't mean they aren't doing hospitality. Hospitality is often unseen and disconnected from an official plan. Uh, So that's fine. And the last thing on that I would just give as practical advice, be sure that you're pacing your calendar. Pace your week, pace your month. Uh, You only have so much energy in a given 24-hour or or in a week. You can't do everything. So cut out a less important thing or two and then invite someone over if you have the energy. But if you don't, then don't. And wait until you do have the energy. So pace yourself for that. So that's the disciple, Lydia. She invites them into her home. Uh, She and her whole household baptized. Um, And then we come to verse 16. Now it happened. Here's here's another uh, section. As they went to prayer, and here we have the demon, I've uh, called it, but it's not exactly a demon, a spirit of divination. Uh, This girl was a slave, and she had an evil spirit that made money by fortune-telling. Uh, the spirit of divination, interesting in the Greek, the little literal word is she had the spirit of a python, which is 
Like, what? What are we talking? And here's some history is very helpful. Uh, the, the spirit is a python, which was believed to run the oracle of Delphi. If you know your Greek history at all, the oracle of Delphi was a big deal in Greek civilization, it, like the mothership of fortune telling, right? Uh, so, the, and, and this, this priestess of, of Delphi would have servants and would have lesser demons, lesser pythons, it was called, who would uh, convey her messages. And so that's what this slave girl was doing and, and making a, a ton of money doing it. Same thing happens to Jesus as happens to Paul here, right? The demons crying out the truth. This is the son of the most high God. Same thing happened, interestingly. Now, an interesting question is, why does Paul get upset? She's like a walking billboard for them. Okay, well, seems good to me, right? Well, was it the wrong kind of publicity, maybe? Um, disruptive, perhaps? Uh, do we really want fortune tellers and oracles endorsing Jesus as if we're on the same team? Maybe it was that. Interestingly, all it says in the text is that Paul was annoyed. Is he just upset with the constant yelling? <laughs> we, we don't really know. But for some or all of those reasons, uh, he uh, casts out this spirit of the python. Uh, fascinating. Paul turns around, he shows who is who. Uh, Paul is not with this woman. Uh, we're not with this spirit. We're, we're not on the same team. We're not together. So uh, th this woman and this spirit need to come to Jesus and follow him and not just scream out the truth about him. So that's what Paul does there in verses 16 to 18. Well, the owners of this slave girl uh, get really upset at that, and they bring him, bring him up on trumped-up charges. The charge is agitation, disturbing the peace. The real story is never told. And the proof uh, the given for the charge is they're Jews. <laughs> These men, being Jews, have been agitating the city. It's really the only reason given for why the charge is true. They're Jews. It, it's, frankly, it's a racist thing. The, the very uh, strong streams of anti-Semitism back then, just as there can be today. They teach anti-Roman customs. Now, it's interesting here that the story just rushes right ahead. The, there's a bunch of people around, and the magistrates strip Paul and Silas and have them beaten by, with rods with many stripes. It's like boom, boom, boom. Very quickly, this seems to happen. Interestingly, why doesn't Paul claim Roman citizenship at this point? He does later in the chapter. Why doesn't he now? He lets himself and Silas be beaten with rods many times. All he had to say was two words, Romanus est, I'm a Roman, and he doesn't do it. Just realized I had my Latin wrong. Anyway, that, I'm a Roman, you know. He doesn't do it. Maybe he didn't do it to show later the error of what they did. We'll get into that later, but they, they're thrown into the dungeon, verse 24, into the inner dungeon. Then, verse 25, one of the funniest verses in Scripture. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
Lots to talk about there. Uh, number one, singing is not just an emotional thing. Uh, the church has gone badly astray in this. Singing is just the emotional part of worship. Uh, and especially when you're driving and you're listening to your favorite songs on the radio, it's, there can be an emotional high in that, driving home from work. Work's done and here's this great song. I want to repeat that experience in church on Sunday. And so we bring those songs from the radio into church on Sunday, as if singing is just an emotional thing. I doubt that Paul and Silas felt like singing with a back torn up from a whipping, not able to lay down and sleep in the middle of the night. That they would sing is quite amazing. And praying, too. This is why I read from Psalm 119 in our opening litany today. There's a verse in there that says, Seven times a day I will praise you. And in the Middle Ages, the monks took that verse and came up with the monastery system by which, still practiced by many today, they will get up in the middle of the night and hold a worship service. And seven times a day, there's Latin words for each one of them, they'll have a, a short worship service. Now, I don't, I don't know that Paul and Silas were doing that kind of system, but they did know Psalm 119, and they did know seven times a day I will praise you. So they're singing at midnight. When we're singing, what are we doing? We're praising God, we're praying. God's calling us to let our heart flow out of our vocal cords. It's a very physical activity. It's, it's a way that we can express our faith very tangibly. Song is speech made more glorious. And, and again, glory is not just uplift and light. It, right? In the Bible, the word for glory is actually heaviness. Glory is heavy. When Isaiah sees God's glory, he is undone. Glory is hard. And song is glorified speech. We have so much fertile ground in our musical history as the church, but we have to cultivate it and, and learn it for it to be of any use to us. And that's why we have a, a hymnal that tries to do that. There's a lot of hard songs in there, complex music, right? It, it's, it's, it's nice to sing familiar hymns, and we should do that as well, but we're also learning to sing God's word in the Psalms. In heaven, they sing a new song when the Lamb takes the scroll. There's glory there. Anyway, that's just a little aside on singing and glory. The prisoners, again, are listening. Again, this is either a joke. It's like, what else are they going to do? <laughs> Talk about a captive audience, right? Or it's deliberate. Maybe Paul and Silas are singing as a way of evangelizing the prisoners. Maybe that's what it is. But in any event, God works a jailbreak for Paul, just like he did for Peter. All the jail doors loose, all the chains fall off. How chains fall off from an earthquake is interesting. There's obviously more than just the physical earthquake going on. There's a miracle here happening. Uh, the jailer uh, is going to be executed if he loses prisoners. And so the fear of death is on him. And, and this uh, comes back to Roman justice. We'll talk about this at the end again. Uh, many seek salvation like they never have before when they are faced with death. I'm about to die. And so his response is to kill himself. 
which is strangely odd, isn't it? But that's, that's what people do when they're seeking for answers and they don't find them. They, they run off the cliff. They run in circles. They don't know what to do. What do you fear? Are your fears driving you to madness like that? Here at this point, the jailer instead is driven to Paul to ask, what must I do to be saved? It's really the same question, you see. I'm afraid of death, of Roman justice, of what's about to happen to me. How can I be saved from that? I think is really his question. He's not necessarily asking, you know, I've been thinking about God lately and the guilt of my sins. I don't know that that's exactly on his mind. But Paul puts it front and center. We address people's fears about other things with the solution of God's word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So, that's what Paul does. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's purpose here is not to escape from jail. His purpose is to show God's power and salvation in Jesus. Golden opportunity right here. And here's the highlight of this chapter, verse 31, right? The jailer asks for a light. He gets the light of the world, as one wit put it. Notice, again, the form of the question. The pagan assumes he's got to scramble to get in good with the gods or with the bosses. What must I do? What must I do? And instead of starting with some corrective Calvinism, right, Paul could say, you can't do anything to be saved. What are you talking about? Don't you know you're Calvin? Anachronism, I know. No, instead of going that way, Paul evangelizes. He appeals to the heart and to the will. All God requires of you is faith. And that's how Jesus answered when the crowds asked him, what must we do to work the work of God? Believe in the one he sent. Beloved congregation, in the Lord, let me speak plainly. You must put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your only hope and trust to survive before a holy God that we have offended. Paul speaks very plainly to this Roman jailer. Well, he believes, he takes them into his house. It's obvious that they're teaching him further. He's asking questions. The jailer washes their wounds. And and then the very next verse is, he is washed with baptism. I found that fascinating. It's practically the same water that's being used. So uh, there's, he brings them into his house like Lydia did, rejoices with his whole family. And notice here, and I'd better find the verse, I think it's around 33, 34. Notice how many times the word house or his or household is used. And it was the same with Lydia. And here I'll, I'll make the Presbyterian point. Uh, the covenant group of the family continues in the New Testament. The coming of Jesus does not eliminate this. Each family still needs to take a stand for or against Jesus. And as a parent, this Roman Philippian jailer, as, as Joshua, back in Joshua 24, you say to your family, 
Let's all follow Jesus together. That's what he's doing. They're all baptized. Uh, nothing about going down to the river here, notice. I think Lydia was probably baptized at the river. That's where they were worshiping. Uh, not sure exactly. But I highly doubt that in, at midnight, they're going down to the river to baptize all of this, this guy's family. So that tells me they're also not being immersed because they didn't have bathtubs that were that big in the house. So there's that point too, but that's just an aside. They have a midnight feast with the whole family. Uh, every significant element of our Protestant faith is here. Notice. The word, the gospel, the, the response of faith by the jailer in his house, water of baptism, bread and wine. Probably. Right? It's all right there. Fascinating. Well, uh, a bit of application on this one before uh, we uh, move to a close. Uh, we've come to understand, I think, that raising our children in the Lord starts with the heart. It doesn't start with a method of discipline, right? A, a method's not going to do it. It, it takes a, a heart that's believing that flows out into specific actions, yes, but the heart comes first. The same is true with our evangelism. There isn't a program or a technique or a method that's going to make us do the work of an evangelist like it should. It starts in the heart. And think here about Paul and what he's doing. Paul could have been thinking about his political freedom and the magistrates. He could have been deriding the man for thinking he could do something to be saved. And the jailer would have been left in the darkness of spiritual death. Instead, Paul stays in that jail... And he responds to the guy who asks, offering salvation to, in Christ freely. That's critical. If our priority is not the state of souls, then our priority will be something else. Our own peace, affluence, and freedom, politics, whatever it might be. Good things, things that are benefits that we ought to pursue on some level. But we need to keep our priorities straight. So, verse 35, the culture war, Paul does wind up making a stink about he, how he was treated in the end. And I want to focus on this because it's not about his own political freedom. He's already been set free. Why does he make a stink now? This one might take a little bit to think through, but, but hang in there with me a second. He demands an apology and a clear name. They want to throw us out? Oh no, they can come and escort us out. What? Why? Well, this would help with the church that he just planted in Lydia's house. That's why. If Paul and Silas can so quickly be brought up on trumped-up charges and beaten with rods, what might happen to Lydia or anyone else who's now associated with these Jews? So, I believe strongly... Paul does this to protect this new church plant. The town magistrates have a warning now to treat Lydia and the jailer, and maybe Luke, if he stays behind, and other believers fairly, unlike they did to Paul. It gives some earthly protection to the brand new church. Right? It, it's interesting, at the very end, they... They, they go and get them out, and they ask them to leave the city. And what do they do? They don't leave the city. 
They go to Lydia's house. You're like, we don't have to listen to you. You, you did us an injustice. So, and I'm, I'm positive, I know I'm speculating a bit, but I'm positive when they go to Lydia's house, they're followed. And the magistrates see where they go, oh, those are their friends. You don't, don't touch Paul's friends, because now Paul, Paul's got something over us. He can go to the higher-ups and get us in trouble. You see the dynamic going on there? So this is all part of what I would call the culture war. If we can work so that political or cultural leaders respect Christianity and the church instead of reviling and mistreating us, we should do that. Groups like Alliance Defending Freedom, maybe Moms for Liberty, all kinds of groups out there like that that are working for that. Now, remember, there's a bad way to fawn and grasp after the approval of the culture by compromising the truth. That we should avoid. We don't work to be given honor by men. But if we can make the gospel more credible and esteemed in the culture, we should do it. And that's what Paul does here. Or at least uh, protect uh, vulnerable Christians from unfair legal procedures. Last, no, second to last. Unmask the gods. In the culture war, we're called to unmask the gods. Show that they are counterfeit. Happens in two ways in this text. Paul does it. There's a spiritual thing and there's a secular thing that Paul does. The spiritual one is, is the python spirit, right? Paul sends away the python spirit. That's huge. Like the oracle of Delphi is just a few miles away. And that's like the center of spiritual prophecy in Greece. And here's this girl who's got the spirit of a python. This was big stuff. This is, she's going to have the words of, of the God. And so Paul shatters that whole facade and sends the python away. Jesus can tell that python where to go. Unmasks the, the facade of the spiritual power. It's like right here in town, those crystals that they sell just a few doors down from here. They don't really tell you your future. They don't really help you with your life energy. You want to unmask that kind of thing. The second one is the secular one. The, the God of Philippi was really Roman law and order. This is a Roman colony. They take pride in their justice. And in this case, I think they're a lot like America, maybe like America was 20 years ago or, or so, but we still have this pride in American justice, right? What's, what's the saying? Truth, justice, and the American way, right? Well, I can tell you, having been a pastor for a while, the justice system is not always just in our country. And that... Uh, facade is unmasked by Paul too. Roman law and order, justice is the big deal. This is what we're good at. And yet they commit a travesty of justice against Paul and Silas. And so they, Paul points that out. That's another reason he says, you can come and get us out. Same thing happened to Jesus with Pontius Pilate. 
by the way. That wasn't really about justice. That was about appeasing a mob. All that self-righteous rhetoric of Roman justice that governments talk so easily, it just flies out the window when a mob threatens to riot. Didn't have this in my notes, but that just made me think of 2020. Right? Roman justice is great on paper, but in reality, it's often just racism and mob rule. The gods are unmasked, and Paul does everything he can to keep the mask off. <laughs> and this, is, this was the impulse that Cornelius Van Til had. He said, go to any worldview that's not Christian and unmask it. Show how it's inconsistent. Show how it's, it's not going to work. That, that was, that, that's a good approach very often. The gods are unmasked. In our life, we need to do the same thing. The counterfeit gods in our culture, the, the mob rule, often takes the form of democracy. Whatever the people want is fine until they want to take the income of others out of envy, until they want to spend themselves deep into debt, until they want to abort their babies, until they want to marry their same-sex partner, until they want to make girls let boys and men into their restrooms. All the people say it's okay. And all of a sudden... Everybody's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Unmask those gods. We also have to do that not just in society. It's not just a culture war. It's a spiritual one in our own hearts. We have to unmask those idols in our own hearts and desires in our own culture. Come and see the errors of our own ways. And then, last of all, believe and call for faith. This is of first importance, that we believe that God made the world, that he holds us guilty for the way we've lived before him, that he promised his people protection from that guilt, that he kept that promise at the cross of Christ, that after the forgiveness obtained there, we have life and freedom and fellowship with God and man. This is what God's word calls us to believe. And so as we see God... Uh, leading Paul here to plant and protect a church. Let's do the same in our own uh, spiritual lives. Plant, be cultivating the seed of faith. Uh, Protect that in our own lives and families. And seek the same in our culture as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, showing to us how you guided Paul and Silas and the rest uh, to Macedonia, to a different people, and that even that, if that led them to suffering, uh, yet it also led to your glory, where we pray earnestly as we think of our own lives and the decisions we have to make. Lord, some of us have major decisions that we've just made or are about to make. Lord, we pray that you would lead us by your Spirit. Keep us from thinking that when bad things happen that we've made the wrong decision. For you, Lord, are the sovereign over all of our lives. Keep us, Lord, 
from thinking that we can control our own lives. Help us to trust in you with all of our heart and not to lean on our own understanding. We thank you for giving us your word, your spirit, and your people to help as we do this. We pray all this in Christ's name. In every living word, and we pray and sing. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Thus far the reading of God's word. Faith is basic to this table. Faith is always involved in food. We have food, bread and wine before us. Think about the parallels there between the food that you eat and the Jesus that God provides you. If you buy the food at the store, you trust those who produced it, and you probably don't know them. If you produced it yourself, you know full well the level of faith the farmer needs. At this table, we know the grower. We know how he made this bread and wine. How it was made is critical. No impurity in the process whatsoever in Jesus coming to us. And it will never go stale or sour. Jesus was faithful to his father. He learned obedience. So... We have food forever. How will we eat it? That's also important. We do this by faith. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus, the body of Christ broken for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.